It's Dr. Seuss Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, and my protege, Bliss Young. How are you doing, Bliss? I'm doing great. How are you? So the Blisterious One is doing great, which is always good. <laughs> uh, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drseusspodcast.com. You can like us uh, anywhere you want. <laughs> I always say this stuff, this laundry list of stuff. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at, at Birthing Instincts. You can find Bliss at, at Birthing Bliss Midwifery. You can find me at doctor, uh, askdrstu at gmail.com for emails. We're gonna, I got one email to go over today. And uh, everything else is pretty much, you can listen to the other podcasts for the introduction and you'll get, <laughs> you'll get all the stuff. So, how you doing? <laughs> so, so, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, life is good. I can't complain. Are you less tired than the last podcast? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're still tired? <laughs> yeah me too yeah i need a coffee yeah so. i need some lunch but that's okay uh okay so uh we got some things to cover in this podcast uh we're sort of going to be shooting all over the all over the place uh i wanted to just to say that by the time this podcast is played i will have attended the physicians for informed consent uh vaccine seminar it's it's on the 17th of um of March, it's an all-day affair. There are going to be some uh, luminaries there to talk about vaccine safety. Uh, contrary to what you might hear on the news or something like that, it's not a done deal that vaccines are 100% safe, even though there are people on TV telling you that. Nope, we know um, people personally who have their children. Everybody have been seems to know somebody who mm-hmm. knows somebody who was injured with it, and yet there's in, they're in complete denial when it comes to state or local governments mandating. More and more now, I think Oregon's got a law that they propose now that's very, very strict. You wouldn't be able to think do things like, uh, they want to vaccine all, vaccinate all adults, and you wouldn't be able to, say, renew your driver's license or, or you'd be associated with your taxes or whatever else. You, you'd have to prove that you've been vaccinated. Uh, it's becoming very totalitarian. SMH. Yeah. You know, I got this thing. Maybe I will. I thought I, you were going to ask me what that was. SMH. See? Uh, Santa Monica Hospital. Shaking my head. Oh, shaking my head. Mm-hmm. Is that a thing like LOL or something? Yes. Is that, is that oh, it SMH. is? SMH. Or in my humble opinion? Yeah. H-I-M-H-O? Uh-huh. SMH? <laughs> it's not Santa Monica Hospital. No, it's sh- shaking my head. Oh, all right. Because <laughs> I'm not a fan. Well, I, I, somebody sent me to this, or somebody was posted on Facebook. I'm just going to read a few of these things because it starts to make you scratch your head and think. I'm not going to get into the vaccine issue. Uh, maybe after the conference at a future podcast, I'll summarize some of the things that the really smart people said uh, at the thing. Um, You're smart. But anyway, this is a thing that was sent on the internet. I, I, gave, it a, I gave it a title called, uh, I called it Vaccine Uberalis, which is German for over, uh, above all. So vaccines above all. Um, many of us are for less government except when it comes to vaccines. Uh, don't take my rights away except when it comes to vaccines. I'm pro-life except when it comes to vaccines. My body, my choice, except for vaccines. Don't trust the government, except for vaccines. The government and big pharma are poisoning our food with GMOs and stuff, except for vaccines. Mercury is bad, except for vaccines. Aluminum is bad, except for vaccines. I'm a vegan, except when it comes to vaccines. Uh, I trust God, except when it comes to my health. I trust vaccines. Um, I can sue if any product kills me or my child, except for vaccines. Informed consent, except for vaccines. Animal rights, except for vaccines. And on and on it goes. Um, and yeah, it's a very provocative thing. It's kind of like, 
Whenever somebody says the science is settled or they say always or never, you always should shake your head. And by the way, right now, we've talked about this on my podcast so many times, there is nothing I trust in the media. Nothing. Zero. It's so much phony stuff. When I see a story about uh, some crime that was committed or something like that, I never. Sh- I, you should never assume that what you're reading is actually the actual story. Mm. You need to always sort of wait and wait and wait and see. Critical thinking. And the problem, of course, with <clears throat> the social media system we have now is that the, you know first is best. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. You just want clicks. And so things come out. And I don't know why the push for vaccines all of a sudden. I mean, it's not like... They, they call it, they, I think they called a, there were, there were 43 cases of measles, I think, in Washington state, and they called it a epidemic. A worse, no, they used a, an adjective in front of the word epidemic. It was like a, um, a horrendous epidemic or yeah. something like that. And it's like, well, yeah, but no one died. Okay. And how many people live in Washington state? That's the same thing that happened with the Disneyland, Disneyland outbreak, which is what started all of this in California. Yeah, they use they use a single thing, like you know, whenever there's a shooting, they 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 go after the gun lobby. I mean, it's like, you know, they just had a shooting in New Zealand recently, which has some of the strictest gun control laws in the world. You, you know, you you, it it's hyperbole to get, to get your point across. It's hysteria. Hysteria is sort of the the modern day, um, town crier. Standing in the public square and, you know, claiming the sky is falling or the end is coming. You and I may not agree necessarily on the gun control issue, but I do agree with you on the other one, on vaccines. I'm just just saying that that the issue isn't necessarily, a lot of people, many people are killed by things that are are guns. We're not calling for SUV control or knife control or airplane flying into building control or... You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so you get my point. Mm-hmm. I get your point. Right, okay. All right, we won't have to go there. <laughs> we, we all right, don't. so I got a letter. Um, well, first of all, before we talk about it, I, I, we were talking about, um, might as well stay close to New Zealand. We were talking about Australia. <laughs> I love your segues sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. I'm like, wow, that was a good segue. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I've, I've been to both countries, but I can't really say I've been to Australia because I've been to Sydney for four days. So that's like somebody coming to America and landing in Miami and saying that I've been to America right. for four days. It's not the same. But <clears throat> I want to go there. But I have to like not take birth for a while because to go to Australia, you just can't go for like 10 days. You want to go and explore longer. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Sounds great. Anyway, I, I just saw this article that um, in, the, in the rural parts of Australia, which are most of Australia, the doctors are handing out what are called DIY birth kits. You know what? DIY stands for? Do it yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. I was like, is is it harder than that? No, it's actually... Yeah, it's yeah. do-it-yourself birth kits yeah. to expecting mothers because they're because functioning maternity wards are so scarce. Mm. And why are they scarce? A lot of them have closed. Why have they closed? I can't say for sure in Australia, but I know that a lot of... We talked about this past podcast about... Um, Rural areas. Yeah, like in Minnesota, they were, they were closing some hospitals mm-hmm. up in northern Minnesota, which was depressing for me because it's my home state. But it's the same kind of thing here, is that uh, expecting mothers are being forced to travel upwards of four hours from some communities in rural Queensland just to seek medical attention. Yeah, not safe. Right. So they want them to move to the city at 36 weeks, <laughs> right? Which is what they did in Alaska uh-huh. when I used to work there. 
back when I was a resident, I spent um, six weeks in or eight weeks in Bethel, Alaska, and they used to fly all the pregnant women from all the way out of Alaska. They'd fly them to Anchorage at 36 weeks, put them in a dormitory, hmm. separate them from their families, their other kids, and do that in the name of safety. And I get it. I understand that. But it is, it is sort of a, you know, you're trading one potential disaster for ulti- different potential disasters. And, and, and that's assuming that, that it was safe for these people to be in an Indian Health Service hospital in Alaska. But there's a real dilemma, and, and you know, the answer for these things would be to have more midwives. Yeah. And lessen the, maybe lessen the, the liability for, for hospitals or whatever so that they are not held responsible by silly protocols like you have to have an anesthesiologist in-house for this or that. The other thing, which is why a lot of hospitals are closing their obstetrical or maternity wards because they can't comply with the standards that are set up by these large you know, large academic centers are setting the standard for the country and, and most people they can't live up to that standard. Right. Yeah. It's uh, our, um, what we find important is reversed. So things like saving money and um, enforcing standards have become more important than the human condition and, and what really works. We give too much power. We surrender too much power to people. And that's the thing that amazes me as my, with my libertarian instincts that why people want government to try to fix things. Every time there's something that goes wrong, they, somebody says, let's get the government to fix it. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's do that. And it, and it, it's like, wait, don't just think for a second. Stop, 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 stop. Think, think, does the government ever really make anything better? I don't, I don't know if I agree that nothing, but I, I think you and I well, overlapped for sure in giving up your rights. Give me, give me. Especially uh, when it comes to your body and your health um, is, is a slippery slope. And that's what I've been saying about the vaccine thing since it happened. This is a slippery slope of giving up your rights to determine what is right for your body, especially when it comes to the government. I don't really take and, the you know, CDC for and their the, and the denial the denial that vaccines are are foolproof that the, the denial that vaccines cause injury the denial that vaccines aren't as good I mean it I just don't understand it I mean the, the mortality from something like regular measles is not very high when you're five or six or seven years old right it's not very high at all mm-hmm. and the life the immunity you get from that is lifelong right. But if you get a vaccination... You need booster shots. Correct. Right. And then you shed. And then you... Yeah, and... Right. <laughs> and then, from what I heard, most of the people at Disneyland were vaccinated. Yeah, that I heard that it. over 50% were vaccinated yeah. people. So, yeah. I mean, it just doesn't really make sense. And if your body is... If you're, if you're um, intervening with your body's ability to build up its own immunity, you're affecting nature and you're throwing off something else. You know, it's like... It's the, the hubris of such that we believe that, that what Mother Nature has designed over hundreds of thousands of years... You know, I, I get, again, you know, I don't want people to think, oh, there he goes on a rant against penicillin or something. You know, I'm not ranting against penicillin. But clearly, every time you do something like that, you alter something down the road. There's a ripple effect. Right. And, you know, penicillin was was an amazing drug. It's still an amazing drug. But now you end up with superbugs and you end up with other things. We don't know where we're going to end up with 
And so, you know, these diseases, our bodies are designed to deal with these diseases. The reason that indigenous peoples in, in America were wiped out when explorers came here is because they were never exposed to these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. All right? It would, be, it would be better, I think, for a population. You know, you don't want smallpox. You don't want things that are deadly. Polio is a big one. Yeah, you don't want the deadly ones. Yeah. But things like measles, mumps, and, and that sort of thing. Flu. It, yeah, flu, right? <laughs> you know. Which is not really a great vaccine anyways. No, granted, there are parents or something who their kid got a whooping cough and nearly died, or even they, maybe their baby died and they didn't get the vaccine. And, and they, if they got the vaccine, maybe that wouldn't have happened. That's true. But there are also people who get the vaccine who have terrible problems. And most people who get whooping cough don't die. Yeah. This is the the thing that I love, one of my friend Augustine says, where there's a risk, there has to be choice. And I just think that's what I go to. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm saying that there's obviously a risk for some people. And so therefore, you have to give people choice about where they want to go with it, period. In a, in a country like ours, that would be basic. Yeah, we're supposed to be all about freedom here, right? But, not, but that's changing. I mean, that's that's <sighs> really changing. I hear that. Um, and it's not about that sort of thing anymore. I mean, I, I don't know what I would do because I'm not getting vaccinated. So I, I don't know what, I don't know what people like me would do. We just have to, you'd like, have to move to another state probably. No, another country. <laughs> no, well, if, if the federal law, the federal, That's change, what I'm but, saying. but I think that one's, t- that won't hold up in the, in the Supreme court okay. because we have a federalist system mm-hmm. where the states, th- things that are not specifically designated to the federal government are assigned to the states that's in the uh, i think that's the bill of rights or the constitution i i get them confused but <laughs> we would have to get a boat a very big boat and we would just be on the seas well, you know, because you know, of that, the laws that, that's right? my that was my dr stew's birth center was going to be 12 yeah. miles offshore well that's what's going to happen the problem of course is then you then you would have to sneak it back into the country because your baby would be not an american citizen oh i thought you meant my baby i'm like i'm gonna have no 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 no, babies. no 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 right. <laughs> the birth center Right. Yeah. Or you can buy an island. I'm not rich enough to buy. See, the island. problem is there's nothing left to discover on the planet. You think if you if the if we could have a colony on, of course, if we have a colony on Mars or something, I'm sure everyone will have to be vaccinated. I don't want to live Mars. on Mars. Everyone else can go to Mars, and I'll just stay here. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I want to live where there's like trees and right. grass. Yeah. And maybe uh, every now and then I see a deer in my front yard. Agreed. That would be kind of cool. Agreed. All right. So from uh, further from Australia, we have Mia. Who writes, um, I'm a home birth mom. I love when they use the word mom. Mm-hmm. Mom. Right, mom. Sophie and her mom. Right. And now starting my final year of Bachelor of Midwifery in Brisbane, Australia. I've recently discovered your podcast and have been enjoying listening through them. Thanks, Mia. Uh, keep listening. Spread the word. Down under. I was wondering if you would possibly do a podcast about inducing IVF pregnancies at 39 weeks. IVF is in vitro fertilization. I have had a hard time finding quality evidence to support this. The only information I could find was the increased rate of stillbirth was around 28 weeks. I don't, I don't know that that's, I don't know about that either, but I will tell you what I know and what, I, what I've heard. I'd be so interested to hear what you and Bliss have to say about this. With gratitude, Mia. Um, well, the thing about IVF pregnancy and induction is that for whatever reason, there's a, there's a mentality that anybody that had to go through IVF that pregnancy is a premium pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that would imply that it's a premium, more premium pregnancy than a woman who got pregnant on her own, mm. which is sort of a 
uh, sort of a paternalistic, silly sort of thing to imply. Yeah. That any one pregnancy is more premium than the other. Yeah. It's more premium because it costs you more money to get pregnant, maybe. But right, and you might not just be able to get pregnant again, kind of thing. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So the idea, and then there's also the concern that possibly because of it's artificially done, that the placental implantation or something could be altered. And again, I'm I'm not an expert on these numbers. I can only tell you what I've been, what I've experienced in my career as far as what I've heard, is that. The feeling from infertility doctors is that these women should be delivered early. They shouldn't let them go overdue because the placenta or something might be faulty. I don't know that there's any data, Mia, on that at all. I don't really think there's any data to speak of that's of any significance because I don't think there's significant numbers to look at that sort of thing. But honestly, aren't we wanting to induce all moms at 39 weeks? I mean, really, it's not that different. Well, this came, this this was out long before that Mm. edict came Mm -hmm. out, that that... We should, we should not let these people go overdue. But I have not seen any substantial evidence. That's all what would be called level C evidence, mm-hmm. which is sort of consensus opinion. It's like you went to all this trouble to get pregnant. Why should you let the increase, slightly increasing risk of stillbirth um, interfere with, with your, your pregnancy? And so they don't consider how you deliver to be important. They don't consider that the idea of going into labor spontaneously is important to a woman that having a uh, unmedicated or, or that sort of, that's not in their concern. Their concern is they, they, they got you pregnant, they want to see the live baby out of it. And so the recommendations are often to uh, induce early. That's my, my opinion. I don't think there's any evidence to support that. I think I would treat them the same way. Maybe if you're worried a little bit, you might start antenatal testing a little sooner than you might start with someone else. Just causes more fear, but... Uh, part of it could be that, again, this whole thing that uh, people that get IVF often are older. And so naturally, with even with women who are older, there is a slightly increased risk of stillbirth of that sort of thing. So they and they give you that they label you with the advanced maternal age thing. Besides, so pouring all that on top of each other, it just seems that that is what comes out after you shake it up and pour it out <laughs> into a glass. It comes out like, well, the, there's this risk and this risk and this risk, and those risks altogether individually are very small. Altogether, they're still small. But why would you want to err on the side of a dead baby and then they pull out the um the dead baby card and sort of scare you into it and these women are very most of them obviously not all of them but i've worked with a lot of ivf moms um and they are very afraid and i think it is because of of the um you know kind of the water that they're steeped in through this whole process about like how they're over tested and and, yeah, yeah, yeah it's so medicalized and i've you know i've had many that in their languaging and somewhere in their heart and deep in their soul, they want to get out of that model and they want to be able to really go back to how they view themselves as, as wanting a natural delivery. But it's so deeply ingrained in them now from this process that even, even with that deep desire, a lot of times I give them these recommendations like I would any other woman and I see them going towards the more fear-based perspective and saying, you know, I just, I can't take the risk. And I'm like, I get it. I, I totally understand. Right. And ultimately it comes down to honest, informed consent and, totally. uh, and, uh, and getting, getting information. And, and what Mia may be asking is, you know, where do you get that information? And there isn't a lot. So we end mm-hmm. up dealing with a lot of what people's opinion are. And of course, most OBs and certainly infertility physicians, they want to see result in a live baby. Yeah. So yeah. I would say if... As, as everybody does, actually. Yeah. If a woman, that we don't. If a woman had 
the ability to really extrapolate herself from that system as an IVF mom and totally say, I want to have, I want to have bliss you as my midwife. And I want you to care for me through the rest of this pregnancy. I personally would not treat her any differently than I would any other mom. I would pay attention and give her informed consent and watch her just like I would any other mom and, um, and hope that by being outside of that model and really being able to go back and trust her body that we can have a normal vaginal delivery. So Mia, that's a great answer. Bliss, bliss always has the final word. (laughs) That would, that would be my, that would be my answer as well. Listerious has spoken. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. (laughs) Oh, you know, I was going to, I was talking to my, uh, my office manager today about in the previous podcast, I talked a little about Clea and the cola inspection. Mm -hmm. And I, and I wanted her, I, and I wanted her to come on the podcast to talk about some of the things, how ridiculous it is. And she says she's afraid to come on until after we get the certification. Aww. Once we get the certification, she'll come on. And I said, well, we could, we could have you come on, and we, then we could, we could disguise your voice like they do, and you could, you, could, you say like, those clear people. So they wouldn't know it was you, right? We have to do that sometime. It'd what? be fun. Do a podcast with fake voices? Or? Not the whole one that get annoying, but. <laughs> Just for a minute. <laughs> Maybe yeah. around Halloween we can get some of those voice disguisers. Yeah, what do they call those things? Voice disguisers? I don't know. They're little boxes that, yeah, that we're gonna do that, it. You know, and then you have to. We'll we'll have a picture of us in shadow <laughs> for the podcast picture, <laughs> so they can't tell it's us. <laughs> um, All right, what do you got? What do I got? You got something. Oh, okay. I think, so I think you're next, and I got something, but we may not get to mine. We'll so. see. We'll see. Okay, so. Uh, One of our lovely joint clients, Evelyn, who's also um, on Instagram a lot, she answered my question about what we should talk about on the podcast. And she said, quoting my husband in regards to Stu at our son's birth, I was in India, unfortunately, and missed this delivery. But um, thanks to your non-intervention intervention... What exactly... I like that. I I like that. (laughs) What exactly are these skills... What category do they fall in? Where have these skills gone in the obstetric world? Are midwives trainer versed in them and the evolution of birth education for birth worker and where it may be headed? I thought this was That's really a heady question. Isn't yeah, it? well, yeah. I thought this was really interesting because you and I both have some mm, disappointment in the direction that our profession is going in. And you think? Uh huh. I mean, indifferent, right? Midwifery versus obstetrics. So well, I thought the, the we could. The whole point both... of Dr. Seuss podcast started out as as that that was the whole purpose of it was for me to vent about all the stuff that was going on. And, <laughs> and that look was, at you That go. was in 2013. So that was six years ago. 141 episodes later. Yeah. So I thought this would be an interesting one to um, to address. Okay. So. What is he? What, what skill is he specifically talking about? I think. I, I think the skill of not doing stuff, the skill of trusting. Right, and I don't think that came from your obstetrical training. Oh, it did not. It, the, the absolute opposite came from my obstetrical training. Right. You want to talk it, more about it that? Came, it basically came from my upbringing. I think I would. I would credit my midwestern common sense upbringing with my good educators that I dealt with uh, in schools, public schools, I think were a lot different mm-hmm. in the <laughs> in the 60s mm-hmm. than they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that I learned not only the basic reading, writing, arithmetic, but I also learned uh, common sense. 
my parents were you know together for 57 years and uh and i saw a common sense worth of way of doing things my mother was a very intellectual person and challenged me as a kid probably over challenged me hmm. i remember looking at through some boxes and finding some of my old spelling things from first and second grade and my that penmanship my penmanship was perfect Hmm. perfect my everything was right you know those paper where it has the two lines with a dotted line in the middle mm-hmm. and you write big you know you write on my you know it was, it was perfect as the top and then the j would be just the right height and so i was sort of that's where i not started now, to get my oc oh no 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 <laughs> i can barely read but your writing <laughs> that frame of mind of of being thorough and being uh and and challenging and being uh and being and questioning things i got from my mother my mother used to come home from teaching and she would complain about some of the stupid things that were going on <laughs> as the school began to change how they initially had one principal uh and by the time 20 years later she finished teaching there were six principals in the school but they had to fire the music teacher and they had to fire the gym teacher because it wasn't enough money for them but we now you know we had six administrators instead of one administrator for the same number for a falling enrollment of students and and uh that sort of thing and she used to complain about that and they had money to to uh, lower the raise the drinking fountain height in the hallway, but not enough to pay for the um, the music teacher. So it was, it was those sorts of things, and I began to see stuff like that. And I remember going to uh, I think I've talked about this in the podcast before. I remember going to a civics uh, a taking civics class in in eighth grade, and we went to a city hall meeting in my little town of St. Louis Park, and we saw that they were voting on whether they were going to put curbing in on the street in St. Louis Park. And the, everyone for that lived on that street actually came that night, pretty much a 95 to 100% representation. Everyone got up to the mic for their 30 seconds or 60 seconds at the mic and said, we don't need new curbing, we don't want new curbing. And then after they closed the thing, they took a vote. It was five to nothing for new curbing. <laughs> okay. So and, it didn't influence and this was them in, at this all. And this was in, let's see, I was in eighth grade. That would have been uh, uh, 69, 70. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't really matter that 40 years have gone by and um, 70, no, 50 years have gone by. Woo. Just wow. like that. <laughs> yeah. About 50 years have gone by and nothing, I mean, and that sort of thing hasn't changed. No, they don't listen to this. The, the, the small person, the average consumer doesn't listen. They have, they have different motivations. And so I saw that sort of thing. And so all through college and all through medical school, I just always ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I ran the service in OB, I did things a little differently. And when I was night OB, I was very efficient. But I also saw the transports that came in. I saw the midwives that came in. I used to talk to them. I got to know them a little bit. When I came, when I finished my residency program, I came out like every other OB, GYN that's trained in the medical model and thinking that I was really, really sharp and I knew everything there was to know. Mm-hmm. And that pregnancy was an illness that needed to be managed and, and was a disaster waiting to happen. And then I began to work with the midwives and back them up and started going to some of your meetings and things like that and uh, began to see a different way of doing things. Yeah, but you were open enough to even do that part. Well, because my, cause my brain had been tra- and trained to, to like ask why. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why do we do that sort of thing? Why are we, you know, I mean, I still to this day, I brought it up again all the time is, you know, why do we prep a woman's vulva for a vaginal birth? Why are we dressing up like it's a hazmat operation? Why... Mm-hmm. You know, why does the cord get cut right away? Why does the baby go to the warmer? Why, you know, that sort of thing. We, I, you ask these questions and you, and you wonder, why, why do we see somebody every four weeks in the first 28 weeks of pregnancy? Yeah. Why? Why not five weeks? Why not three? 
Why does it have to be every four weeks? Right. And then every two weeks and then weekly. And so, I, you know, and, and we don't ask these questions enough. And I'm guilty uh, of doing a lot of things because I don't ask it on everything that I do. I would go nuts. But, but sort of that's how my mind worked. Yeah. And so I sort of began to back off of some of the things. Why are, we, why are we doing all this stuff? I could never have adapted to being a home birth physician if I hadn't. Well, I never would have had that choice anyway if I didn't know midwives in the first place. They talked me into it. But, but if I hadn't evolved from the midwifery, because I talked to many of my colleagues who work in the hospital and they openly will state that they're... they're unhappy. No, well, they're unhappy, but they're mm-hmm. also sort of excited about what I'm doing, but they say they could never do it. Right. Like I, I could never be without an anesthesiologist. They you don't know. know. They don't know. Yeah, right. they don't know. They don't so, know. That's sort of how I became, uh, you know, to be able to be a non-intervention interventionist. So he he goes on to say, where have these skills gone in the obstetric world? Well, they've been beaten. They've been beaten out of the system by the takeover of of of, of obstetrics from the private individual doctors who used to run the departments and stuff like that, to academicians, to risk management departments, to administrative. You know, big inst- big they're big institutions now. And institutions make rules. And compliance is a, a very popular word. And so everybody has to comply with the rules that come on. And so they beat out the shepherd in people and they turn them into sheep. Mm-hmm. And, and because of expediency, because of economics, the financial aspect of, of how, what we do and stuff. Um, peer pressure from the other doctors. Peer pressure, right. the legal pressure, the mm-hmm. the pressure from like again, like from risk management, and then other departments in uh, in the hospital are affected by OB. So a lot of what OB policies are come from the anesthesia department. They come from the pediatric department, who have who look at the who don't care about your client. Mm-hmm. They don't care about the individual. They care about making it through the day and going home to their family without an incident. And so they, and if, it, if it's an incident that caused, that's caused by the hospital policy, then they feel like they're indemnified or they're, they're uh, numb to that. Doesn't, that's not going to affect them. But if they go out on a limb for somebody and do something that's outside the hospital policy, they're putting them, making themselves vulnerable. And they've seen people lose their careers because of a bad outcome, uh, even if it wasn't anyone's fault. Yeah, and I think that that overall is a big change culturally is just the work ethic in general, I think has changed a great deal where it is more like, let's just clock in, let's clock out, let's, you know, let's keep our head down, let's do, let's not, um, you know, stretch ourselves too far, let's just kind of stay under the radar, do what needs to be done and get home. Yeah, I mean, I think medical students come into residency with great intellectual curiosity and great energy and really desire to do good, and it gets, a lot of professions, and it, and it gets beaten out. It gets beaten. Mm-hmm. Out, it gets beaten out of them. Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. It's a. It's a. The the residency program, even though they've made it easier than it was when I was a resident, where they didn't have time limits and hours limits, and stuff that you could work. Um, it's still. It's still. It's very tedious. It's very hard work. Uh, there's a lot of pressures put upon you. Um, the hours can be crazy. You, you know, your health can be affected. Um, and sometimes you have to emotionally detach yourself from that in order to survive. And I think that that happens all too often, which is why by the time people finish their residency, they haven't demanded 
to learn how to do a breach delivery. They haven't demanded in their training to learn to put forceps on. Well, they're also being given opportunities to learn these skills and turning them down. You've said that and Dr. Wu said that as well. Like they had opportunities to learn the skill and just said they didn't. Yeah, didn't and now the opportunity now the opportunities for many of these skills are not there anymore. Um, mm-hmm. because the people teaching them don't know how to do it. Right. Because the people teaching them are a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And that that that's a big change too. I, I think that that it used to be that that OBs taught OBs. And then the maternal fetal medicine in the 80s took over the academia. Because when I was the chairman of my department, when I was uh, a resident, he was uh, supposedly an oncologist, but he was just mainly an OB guy. He was just a regular guy, a wealthy guy who you know may have had credentials, but also had had uh, prestige, and so he got the position. But over the time, that position now now goes on to people who who are mostly into interested in academics and publishing. And that sort of thing, and then it becomes a, a financial incentive for them, and production and the way that their contracts are assigned, and it becomes it, it, they they've sort of lost sight of the individual, and they're teaching the future doctors their way of thinking, and the and their way of thinking is that because they're MFMs, is that OB is a danger, OB is a problem, um, and it's not safe to do things outside of how we do them. That's how they're taught. It's again, it's a, there's a sort of a bias there. I wouldn't necessarily call it confirmation bias, but it's a, it, it, you know, it's sort of what, what you expect to happen and so you, you become what you expect. Risk management, right? That's one way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Um, it you know, to me, it's sometimes it's risk over management. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> because, because the risks are small yeah. and the interventions tend to cause problems of their own. But see, those interventions, they don't, they don't seem to bother. I mean, the, the problems that are caused by the interventions, you know, ultimately lead from a C-section rate rising from 5% to 32% and that sort of thing. And it just leads to more and more trouble. And, and, and the, that's why we were talking about, you and I privately, we were talking about a little bit about how people are realizing that there's too many C-sections being done and what are we going to do to try to fix that? And that's, that is sort of a driving force right now. In, in, and we'll, maybe, we'll get, maybe we'll have time to get to that today or not. Uh, yeah, about, that's the New York Times article. It's talking about that. So maybe we will. Yeah. So the, anyway, keep going with the this next because thing he says is, now we're not exactly sure what skills, but um, are midwives trained in them, in these skills? And what I wanted to say about that is that this is part of the frustration that I have with my profession is that um, midwives were historically known as the wise women. That's basically specialized in you know, births and women's health and all of things related to that. We were also often medicine women. We used a lot of um, herbs to treat many things in the family. Um, and now I think that since we've become professional midwives, we're starting to move in this direction of being seen as a subcategory of obstetrics. And it's kind of like taking uh, something like, let's say, cancer, and going to a Western doctor or a, a an Eastern doctor, you know. So comparing the way that someone, or let's say liver disease, the comparing the way that that acupuncturist would deal with what's happening in the body versus what a Western doctor would do, what's happening in the body, are two different, completely different modalities. And I feel like sometimes 
obstetrics and midwifery get put in this same category, whereas I think that we really look at things from a very different perspective. And when I talk to people about the difference between it, if you look at the definition of an OB, it's a doctor who specializes in pregnancy-related illnesses and surgery, okay? And midwifery is specializes in the dyad of the mom and baby in a natural pregnancy and delivery, the, those are two different specialties, and um, so we yeah, are. That's one. You know, I, I I repeatedly say that all the time, and I agree with you one hundred percent. That's why I don't understand why state medical boards, you know, whenever there's a whenever there's a ruling that goes on about midwifery, the doctors always have a say. Yeah. But when the, there's rulings <laughs> about doctors in the state, they don't ask the midwives what they think. Never. Right. Now so, we would know that times were changing if that started to happen. No, but why? Why? Why OBs have any real any real say in the, in the midwifery bylaws or rules makes no sense to me. I yeah. mean, because but but it's the way you're right. It's the way people think. They think of of midwifery as a lesser subset of of the obstetric profession. Yeah. When it's a completely different profession, as you said, it's about it's about normal pregnancy, which is about eighty to eighty five percent of pregnant women. Are normal, and you're and you excel yeah. at that, and we're and we excel at the other fifteen or twenty percent right. who have problems. Sometimes we over excel, and sometimes we're not so great at it. Because I think, I think even those people, we, we they, I mean, even those clients, we look at as we forget that they're that they're they're an individual, that they're a human being. We forget that there's that that there's a, there's a there's a personal a psyche a, a, psych, a psychological side to the woman they're treated. You know, when people come into the hospital, I mean, I, I just remember, you know, I never really attended to the human side of them. And you're not even talking about like the effects that this has on the rest of your life and all of that. But if you just talk about the delivery moving forward in a natural way, not acknowledging that hormonal influence of how the woman feels in what's happening, you're missing a huge huge part of nor- normal delivery. Right, and that's not taught in the medical model. And if you think about it, that's crazy, right? It's insane. So in answering to his question, yeah, there are technical skills that we learn that I think many midwives are are quite capable of, but sometimes they're actually restricted from because of the regs or rules that they have to deal with. Like breach. But if he's talking about like a, maybe the Ritkin maneuver or maybe a manual rotation of the head or th- those are, yeah, I mean, midwives know how to do that sort of thing. I mean, you yeah. guys are taught that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, Some training is better than others. I mean, there's certainly, for sure. you know, you're only as good as the training you're exposed to. And, you know, midwifery training is there's different types of midwifery training. For sure. And, you know, we're, we're trained to be able to deal with the normal complications that we may see, especially for the midwives who do not live close, you know, who are practicing where they can't get to a hospital for, you know, 40 minutes, an hour or whatever, maybe even longer. You have to know how to deliver a surprise breach or manage a shoulder dystocia or manage a hemorrhage or, you know, one of those things that we may uh, help a baby transition. Those are very important skills for us to have in case we have that type of complication. You know, things that can't be foreseen, right? If you can foresee something happening and you can get, you know, transfer somebody out of care or get them to a hospital, but it's those every once in a while, something that comes up that we know could come up. Um, So yeah, we're trained in that. 
Yeah, uh, and I'm just thinking maybe this maybe this is going to get me in trouble, but I'm also thinking about <laughs> the I fact that, that beca- because you are women, all right, you as midwives, the, you, you, there's uh, there's you're also extremely nurturing mm. as a midwife. Yet I look at I look at female OBs, and that nurturing thing is diminished. And this is a generalization, of course. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's exceptions to everything that we we don't need to go through the whole you know thing about exceptions. But when in general, you, you you because of the the model by which we we practice in medicine, there isn't the time for the nurturing. There isn't the bond that develops. There's it's a shift mentality sort of a lot of times now because you you know you may see a doctor for all your prenatal visits and then you got a one in 10 chance that that person will actually be the one delivering you. And so you have somebody else that comes on that's just, that's just there for 12 hours. They have not, they're not invested in you whatsoever. Right. So, I mean, we have problems with the models of care, of, of care and that, that's not something I see getting better. I mean, I, I talked to you a little bit about some optimism. That's one of the things I don't mm-hmm. necessarily getting, getting better because of the financial and uh, expediency system and people want lives. Yeah, it happens in midwifery sometimes too. I mean, I think that was one of the things that I was, you know, disappointed about in the model that we created at the sanctuary is like we tried to create balance for the midwives, which was great. Um, but I felt like the care suffered because of that, because, you know, you don't have that same continuity of care with having one provider or maybe two providers that you get to know very well through your whole Right, and, and everybody's personality is different. And so right. a certain client might like a certain midwife better or have a problem with a certain midwife and again you can't control who's on that you know i mean you can't really do that if you're going to have a model where you used to have the model that was you want midwives with lives midwives with lives right yeah you did you want them to and that's something that the individual practitioner doesn't have which is why burnout is is really high in our profession burnout's high in the medical profession too and that's why a lot of especially a lot of women physicians biologically because they have children you know, they may practice obstetrics for five years after they finish their residency, and then after that, they give it up. Right. And so they've gone through all that training, and then they don't they don't do it anymore. And so there's a shortage of people delivering, and yet midwives are still looked at as second class citizens. When ultimately, labor and delivery units would thrive if they had more midwives in them. Yep. Was there more to that question? Well, the last part of the question says. Uh, the evolution of birth education for birth workers and where it may be headed. <laughs> oh, well, I think we sort of touched on that. Yeah. And I think that it's not, it's not going in the right direction. I think that, um, I think because of it, because it's mass produced, it's, it's really hard to get things to change, uh, where things really need to be changed. Uh, I think that, that midwives should be teaching residents of NOB and not maternal fetal medicine specialists. Hmm. I think that, um, there should be centers where things like twins and breaches are, are, you know, especially in big cities where they're they're congealed in one place, so that residents can come and get training. That sort of thing isn't going to happen, likely. Um, again, it gets down to the economics and the expediency of the system the way it is right now. I just don't see that the education is going to get get better. I think that. Um, it, yeah, it's if if consumers demand it and we form. You know, I've always said this so many times is that if we if somebody you know could win a billion dollar lottery and then set up an entirely new system for women to deliver their babies not in hospitals 
Yeah, you know, that's what necess- the sanctuary was in, n- in the best vision. Not necessarily in a home birth setting, but have a center that that's like much more nurturing toward women. And if you know, and, and and again, because you have to have hospitals for the really people that really get sick. Sure. Have it have a have a collaborative thing. But I think that hospitals, again, because they're run by financial people, they're run by administrative people, insurance companies. And it, really. Well, it, well, they're that's they're running. They they want their money. Right. They don't want to give up anything, which is why it always amazes me that, you know, if people complain about the 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 state of obstetrics in the United States, you know, we're fortieth in maternal mortality and blah blah blah. <laughs> it's not because one percent of people are delivering at home. No, it's because it's because the ninety nine percent are delivering in the hospital. Right. And yet, the idea of trying to change the hospital system is the last thing that the academia is trying to do. They're they're they're, they're focusing a lot of their con- concern on those one or two dastardly percent of people who choose not to come into their model. And you know, I don't know that they see it as an economic threat or a, or a, a professional threat. They shouldn't see it as a threat at all. They should see it as um, an ideal for doing what's best for the for the women of our country, but yes. that's just not the way it's looked at. I love that, Stu. That was a good quote. Well, they don't do that. <laughs> no, but in in a perfect world, that's where the direction we would go. We would train more midwives. We'd have them more integrated into the into the st- infrastructure. Um, insurance companies would pay licensed midwives and CNMs. Um, and equally with OBs, right. And we would, um, and we would then use midwives for what they're great at. And we would use OBs for what they're great at and things would improve greatly. So that's from Dr. Stu podcast perspective. That would be the way to change the situation that's happening now, but we don't necessarily see that happening at the moment. No, I just, I just, uh, I, I just, I don't. And it's, I sad for me to say that because I'd like to I'd like to see something optimistically change. I mean, what I do is not a sustainable model. Um, it's really not. Uh, you know, I do it because I love doing it. But I am getting older now, and physically, it's getting harder on me. And there's going to come a time where I'm going to have to stop hmm. doing it. And and the people coming out of residency now are just not trained to do what I do. They just don't have the confidence or the skill. And so, you know, it's going to be dying. I mean, as Dr. Wu says famously, and, and Elliot says famously in the Heads Up documentary, it says the people that know how to do these things are, are dying off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we are. So not soon, I hope. Uh, Me too. All right. So we got, we got just a little more time left. Do you want to talk a little bit about that New York Times article? Um, sh- sure. I think it's a little bit optimistic. If I that's can, that's what I want. I would I like can, to end with something optimistic. You want it? <laughs> well, there was a paper that came out of Jerusalem about uh, home births being more dangerous than hospital births, and I have to tell you it's that a I downer. went. Yeah, it's it's right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that I'm talking about, but just real briefly, um, they talk about the th- about three times more risky for um, infant mortality for babies born at home than at the hospital. I searched the internet all over the place to try to find the, the article. And apparently it isn't really, from what I can tell, it was a presentation at a conference. It, there's, there, there's nothing written. So there's no way to critique it. Hmm. Because even in Israel, I don't know how they, how do they register home births. Were they planned home births? Were they unplanned home births? Were right. they skilled practitioners? Or were they unskilled practitioners? Were they anomalous fetuses? Were they preterm fetuses? Were they, we don't know anything about the home births. Hmm. And I couldn't find it anywhere. And then, the, and then, you know, the author of the study says this, and it, 
Just listen to the words carefully and see if you pick up what I picked up on, okay? This study matches the findings of larger studies conducted in the United States and confirmed our hypothesis that childbirth in non-hospital settings is far more dangerous than in hospitals. Okay, the words that I bothered me are confirmed our hypothesis. Mm-hmm. All right? So that's where it comes into what's called confirmation bias. And I actually looked up the definition of confirmation bias. It's a noun. And the tendency to interpret new evidence at, as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. All right? Yeah. So they went out to prove that hospital births were safer because he, he's admitting that they had a hypothesis that they were. And so they proved it. So again, you look at a paper like this and maybe it's legitimate. Maybe it is that high that risk. But without seeing the numbers, I mean, and, and how they collected their data, remember that I say every time I talk about a study, people, material and method section, material and method section. You have Keep to look through that. questioning, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but, I, but these studies are out there. So I always like to bring them up and say, listen, if it's legitimate, I'd like to know it's legitimate, but I can't find the article anywhere. So I don't even know that it's actually been published in a journal. It might have just been a presentation at a conference. You know, sometimes they have, they're presenting their data before they actually publish anything. Right. Before it's actually peer-reviewed. So we'll, we'll see if it comes out. But unfortunately, it makes a headline. And the headline was, here yeah, you read it. Home births are three times more dangerous than hospital deliveries. Right. Bam. And that's all well, people that, will read. And that's all people will see. <laughs> Correct. Boom. So this was sent to me by my mom's partner, um, and it's in the New York Times from March 5th. And I was, um, I was happy to see that they mentioned that women in the United States face a far greater risk of dying from childbirth complications than in many other wealthy countries, which we know. Now the federal government has taken a step towards addressing the problems with the Preventative Maternal Death Act, signed in December, which will provide federal grants to states to investigate the deaths of women who die within the year of being pregnant. So we'll see about where that goes. Um, but it does start to talk about where other countries have worked to reduce the risk of maternal mortality in recent decades, including Sweden, where deaths are four in 100,000 births, and England, nine in 100,000. Rates in America have doubled in the last 20 years. You're talking about maternal deaths or? Maternal mortality. Maternal mortality. Okay, mm -hmm. great. Okay. So what do we know about Sweden and England? Well, I know about England very well. I don't know much about Sweden, but England, I know there's a very integrative system between right. midwives and, and physicians. They work in, in collaboration very well, and there's continuity of care from home to hospital and even in hospital. Uh, for those women that want to start there, they can have a midwife, and it's usually a midwife they... Well, it's not always a midwife they know, but often there is continuity. Mm -hmm. So they talk about it in this article. In most countries, in the Commonwealth Fund report, mothers delivered their babies in the care of midwives in more relaxed environments. Sweden has one of the lowest C-section rates, around 17.3%, which if you ask me is still high, of all births, and one of the lowest Was that, rates if you ask me, it was all high? Was, in, was that in the article? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was a blissy sidebar. All right. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I thought maybe the, author, the writer of the article put that in there, but that would have been great if she did. Uh, so I was really happy to see that they mentioned that one of the, you know, ben one of the solutions. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. Mm. People that deny it know it. Okay. <laughs> they know it. Mm -hmm. But they, they, again, there's, there's, there's much too much at stake here for them to suddenly say 
the system that we put in place and that we're profiting from is all bad and wrong, and we need to change everything. Yeah. The, it, it, there's, there's, it's really hard when you're invested in it. You just you double down, and you double down, and you double down because you can't admit that you know maybe we just need to start over. I think so. But well, I'm a it, bit you know, of an it's anarchist. like it's like it's like just a, a simple example. It's like public education. All right, you know, we spend a lot of money in public education, but you know, we're having bad results in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. All right, so we need to spend more money. So we spend more money and we get bad results. And at some point, somebody says, "Well, maybe it's not spending more money that's the key. It's maybe changing how we teach our kids." Right. It's the same thing here. It's like they they keep they keep the system going, even though they can see that in other countries. It works well. One of their arguments against home birth in the United States is that there isn't the the, the smooth transition. There isn't that that collaborative thing that that doctors and midwives that they work together so well in England. So fix it. Yeah. So fix it. Right. <laughs> Duh. Right. That would be the solution, not to say, well, let's not do home birthing till we fix that, because you're never going to fix that unless we have a reason to force you to fix it. Right. And that would be to get the home birthing rate up to five or ten percent. All right. And then they're, they're, then they'd have to fix it. Um, or f- 40. Wouldn't that be great if we were like England? Um, but your biggest risk factor, they say, this, this is going away from midwifery and the main topic of this article, which I want to let you guys know. Your biggest risk factor for the most common surgery is not your preference or your medical risks, but which door you walk through. According to the study published in the Health Affairs in 2015, rates of C-section delivery at hospitals in the United States vary from 7 to oh, 70%. Oh, which hospital doors you walk through, Wow. Right? Yes. From 7 to 70%. So you should be more aware of which hospital you're going to or don't walk out your door, maybe. Right. <laughs> Just stay right, home. Right, <laughs> but look into the option. It's not for everybody. No. But informed decision making is. That's right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a motto from Doctor Stu's podcast. But um, bump. But yeah, no, it really is. So we, you know, the the solutions are not that difficult, but there are so many forces lined up against them. Yep. Anyways, um, it was great to see you today. Yeah. Yeah. John's playing the music. <laughs> that means it's time for John to go. It's time for lunch. <laughs> All right. So listen, this again. This has been. Uh, we really thank everybody for listening. We thank you for sending in your letters. Um, it does affect us. Uh, Bliss has been using Instagram now, looking for like trolling, tro- trolling for <laughs> for um, suggestions for podcasts. Not that we ever have run out of ideas. We have lots to talk about. But it was fun. I like it. It was fun. So again, thanks for listening. This is uh, Doctor Stu's podcast number one forty one, and you can again find us on your podcast app. Find us on Facebook. Find us at iTunes. Uh, subscribe. Give us five stars. You can write me at askdrstu at gmail.com or find me at uh, Birthing Instincts on Instagram uh, or at my Facebook page, Dr. Stu, uh, Swordfish by an OBGYN. And Bliss? Yeah. Where uh, can you find me? Yeah. Everywhere. No. Find me on Instagram. She's so blisterious. Birthing Bliss Midwifery or email me at birthingbliss.com. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.